Hi there, I'm Adam Allington. I'm a reporter with Bloomberg Environment. But before I became a reporter, I grew up on a cherry farm in northern Michigan, in Leelanau County, the cherry capital of the country. In fact, almost everyone in my family raised cherries, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. But in addition to those early memories of working out in orchards, I also remember the bees. You see, in order to get a good cherry crop, you need bees to pollinate the cherry blossoms. We had about 10 hives, and every spring we'd move them out into the orchard. And later in the spring, we harvested the honey. And that was the last time I really thought about bees until about 2007. Since then, bees have been in the news a lot. The die-off, known as colony collapse disorder. Adult bees leave the hive and never come back. These outbreaks pose a threat to the production of at least 30% of our nation's crops. Beehives that are totally empty. This is The Business of Bees, a six-part podcast about bees and pollinators where we go back in time and try to connect the dots since the first cases of colony collapse disorder were reported. Together with my colleagues David Schultz and Tiffany Stecker, we travel around the country speaking with beekeepers, farmers, scientists, and companies to try to find out how it came to be that bees became so central to our agricultural economy and why they continue to die in record numbers today. We'll tell the story in six parts, with a new episode dropping every week. And to kick things off, we decided to dig into the nuts and bolts of the modern bee economy, the bee-conomy. And what better place to do that than the largest managed pollination event in the world, the California Almond Bloom. And that, of course, is the talented and capable voice of Tiffany Stecker, Capitol Hill reporter for Bloomberg Environment. Tiffany, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Adam? Uh, I'll tell you what I am is excited to talk about bees. So, Tiffany, you're a Californian and actually went to college not too far from where this first story starts. Why don't you set it up for the listeners? Well, to start things off, we thought it would make sense to go to what's basically ground zero for the pollination economy. There's a place in the Central Valley of California, this sprawling flat area of land that runs from about Bakersfield to north of Sacramento. And they grow lots of food in the Central Valley, right? That's what it's known for? Yes, that's right. And they're particularly known for their almonds. So our rule out here is if a bee lands on you, you're not allowed to swat it off because it's an expensive bee and we expect work out of them. That guy you just heard is Blake Davis. He's an orchard manager for an almond farm in Arbuckle, California. About an hour north of Sacramento, right off the I-5, um, small farming town. Hopefully I don't get stung. Tiffany and I visited Blake last February, and if you've never seen California almond country in full bloom, it's quite something. Oh my gosh, pink and white blossoms just acre after acre. They last for about six weeks from about Valentine's Day to mid-March. About 80% of the world's almonds are grown in California, and almost every one of those almonds wouldn't be possible without a bee to move pollen from one blossom to the next. So what we're looking at right here is 500. 84 hives, they're a little bit pricey, so we have to be pretty wise with that decision, too, on how many hives we want to bring out here. And for every one of those acres, there are two hives, or about 80,000 bees working to pollinate them. It's a big enough difference that growers are willing to accept, you know, almost $400 an acre on cost for, for just bees alone to have them brought in. And so without them, 
there would be really no point in trying to farm almonds out here. And the whole reason we decided to start the show in Blake's Almond Orchard is to highlight just how much agriculture, and almonds specifically, has changed beekeeping. Right. It's actually been the case for a while now that commercial beekeepers make most of their income not from honey, but from pollination services. I've got the best job on earth. That's John Miller. He's a commercial beekeeper from North Dakota. Every year, he ships about 13,000 hives to California for almond pollination. Look at this. It's a beautiful spring day in Northern California. Almond trees are in bloom. Now, these particular hives we're standing next to are from an orchard just outside of Modesto, where John's bees aren't wasting any time exploring their new surroundings. Scouts are just coming back with, like, I've got news, I've got news. There's this great smorgasbord, and it's only an eighth of a mile away. Over the past decade, John says the money he makes from pollination has increased so much, he doesn't even harvest the honey most of his bees make, which is odd given that honey's in the name of his company. So you still call it Miller Honey, though, even though it's, yep. even though you don't, you're not in the honey business anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah, this business has changed. We used to be a honey production company that did a little bit of pollination work. And we're now a pollination services company that does a little bit of honey production. John says the growing demand for pollination was driven by the expansion of the almond industry. Over the past 20 years, he says he's gone from running his bees for about $30 per hive to over 200 for almonds. If you look at the almond board acreage for the past 25 years, there's virtually no interruption in the expansion of acres. They just keep planting more trees. So back in 2001, there were about 600,000 acres of almonds planted in California, up to about 1.3 million and growing today. But while commercial beekeepers make most of their money from almonds, all those bees were basically out of work in March. So they started looking around for new crops. You know, they'll go from almonds to plums to cherries to apples to vine crops to pit fruits to cotton to lima beans, to watermelons, and then their season is over. All told, the USDA estimates that commercial beekeeping adds more than $15 billion in economic value to U.S. agriculture each year, with no sign of a recession in sight. Given those facts, you might expect that beekeepers would be doing pretty well, right? I mean, demand for bees is increasing, so just make more hives. Unfortunately, that's not the case. No, why not? It turns out that just keeping bees alive is becoming harder and harder. I don't know if any of you guys have heard about this article in the New York Times. Well, apparently, honeybees are just disappearing all over the country. Tens of millions of them. All right, let's hear some theories about why this might be happening. Nobody? You're not interested in what happened to the bees? Um, I'm interested in what happened to the bees. This is Mark Wahlberg in the 2008 apocalyptic thriller called The Happening. As big as a fan I am of the film career of Marky Mark, I somehow missed this one. Well, I think you and a lot of people did. But if you remember back in 2007, 2008, headlines about these mysterious bee die-offs were everywhere. Adult bees leave the hive and never come back, leaving the babies to die. Researchers blame pesticides, disease, and parasites. So this is the part where we talk about colony collapse disorder. Is that still a problem today? That is the exact question I asked Mark Johnson. He's a commercial beekeeper from Portland, Oregon. The biggest struggle is keeping the bees alive every year because just like every other beekeeper in the United States, mortality rate's real high. And so we spend a great deal of money 
to replace bees each year. While cases of outright collapse aren't as common these days, Mark says his bees are still dying at much higher rates. And even with demand for his hives going through the roof, that doesn't mean he's taking all that money to the bank. Right. At some point, even at 200 plus per hive, you kind of reach the limit of costs you can pass on to your customers, to say nothing of actually growing your operation. I think last year I figured for every hive that dies, it cost me somewhere around $250 to replace it. Yeah, I could do it if, if you gave me lots of money, I could replace all my bees. And, but then in a few years, I'd be back where I am now because it's not economically viable to do too much of that. When I spoke to Mark last January, he told me that it's not unusual for him to lose half his bees over the year compared to around 15 percent in years past. And it turns out that what we're calling colony collapse might actually be this grab bag of problems, all affecting bees in different ways. They're frantically trying to find solutions, but every year we come up with more questions than answers. We have no effective miticides. We have the pesticide problem. We have the herbicides problems. We have the fungicide problems. So the problems seem to get larger every year as opposed to smaller. So what are the best theories we have for the causes of colony collapse today? Well, for a long time, people thought that pesticides were killing the bees, but there's also evidence that increased pressure from parasites is to blame, also lack of habitat. And this is just what's happening to honeybees, right? Which we can actually replace, you know, like livestock. But that's not the case with many native bees, which are also dying in high numbers. Well, like most problems faced by agriculture, there's no shortage of companies working to develop solutions for beekeepers as well. Last January, I went to the annual trade show for the American Beekeeping Federation okay, in South I'm Carolina. I'm through the conference exhibition hall, and we've got a little bit of everything. I'm picturing a giant exhibition hall, lots of company reps and polo shirts. Uh-huh, and free giveaways, of course. People over here selling hives. There's people back there selling centrifuge equipment. We've got books on beekeeping. Hi there, could you tell me a little bit about what your company does? So our company, that's Bevitalink, we specialize in honeybee health. So we're doing all sorts of products from medicines to feeds and making sure that our populations don't decline. And it's not just American companies that are seeking to get a toehold in the growing bee economy. Hi there, my name's Adam from Bloomberg. Where is your company based? Our company is based in the center of China, Henan province. This is Wu Ping. He's a sales manager for a Chinese beekeeping supply company called Multi-Sweet Group. For you guys to come all this way to the States for this conference, must yeah. be the industry must be pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Actually, our company is doing business of beekeeping for 10 years, but this time is our first time to United States. So we just want to uh, meet many of our customers by face by face, face to face, yeah. But there's also other signs the bee economy has entered new territory. Beehive thefts have been on the rise for the past several years. Once they were in our care, we're 400 or 420. And then there was a 200 and something right next door. It was close to 700 taken in one night. This is Philip Strachan, a commercial beekeeper and queen producer from Yuba City, California. To deal with bee rustlers, he says many beekeepers these days pay extra for security services. We visited Philip in February to get a better sense of where exactly the supply chain for new bees starts. Could you kind of explain where we are? This is where we have the queenless hives. We do the grafting here inside the shed, and then we put them out here, and then we come 
take them from those hives and put them out to be mated. The queen operation at Strachan Apiaries is overseen by this guy. My name is Geronimo Bidauri. I've been working over here for this company for almost 28 years. And uh, I'm a queen um, manager over here. Queen manager is my choice for the coolest job title of all time. <laughs> Seriously. Basically, his job is to take individual bee larvae and turn them into queens. We grab 2,100 queens a day. Every day? Yeah. Every day for March, April, and May. So, the central tenet of queen production is that a fertilized egg can be turned into either a queen or a worker bee based on the food it receives as a larva. So Geronimo sets up these starter colonies. Young larvae are then transferred or grafted into the colony, where the worker bees feed them large amounts of royal jelly. Maybe we should explain what royal jelly is. Sure. So royal jelly is a substance secreted from the glands of special nurse bees and fed to all the larvae in the colony. But the larvae destined to become queens get a little extra helping. Owing to her special status and all. And that extra bit of jelly triggers the development of queen morphology, including the ovaries needed to lay eggs. The queens are actually easy to spot if you know what you're looking for. Once they've taken their first mating flight, they're separated out, put in a little box. We put a cork. And if they're in these type of cages, we will put a scoop of bees in there with them to take care of them during shipping. We ship them overnight. Russell Heitkem is also a beekeeper and sells packaged bees and queens. A package of bees is two, three, four pounds, whatever you decide, with a queen. And it's ready to be dumped into an empty box, presumably something that has died over winter. New queens generally cost about $30 a piece, which, if you're buying hundreds or thousands every year, adds up quickly. We're always sold out, and thusly the prices are continuing to go up. The demand is much more than we can supply, which is, you know, it's great for business, but it's, it's a little stressful when people want something that we can't really produce. In his conversations with other beekeepers, Highcamp says he's heard from people who've lost over half their hives over the winter. And even if more people try to enter the market to become beekeepers, the learning curve is really steep, and there just aren't enough of them. The almond industry is asking, basically they're asking for 200,000 more beehives every year to meet the demand for pollination. So Adam, as we know, almonds are almost entirely dependent upon honeybee pollination, but Without honeybees, yields for things like blueberries, squash, watermelon, even avocados would all be reduced. Oh man, those are like four of my top 10 favorite foods right there. Um, and you know, it's strange to think about this entire booming economy built on bees where honey's kind of an afterthought. Because it's so much cheaper to just import honey from places like China or South America. But that doesn't mean there isn't demand for locally produced honey or other bee-based products. Take, for example, this guy I met last summer. Yeah, I'm Kirk Jones. I'm the founder of Sleeping Bear Farm, Sleeping Bear Apiaries. Jones is a beekeeper from Beulah, Michigan. In addition to running a commercial pollination business, he also sells his honey and beeswax directly to local grocery stores and farmers markets. And for him, honey's still big business. There's three or four honey boxes on every hive. It's, it's a very good year for us with abundant sunshine and rain and uh, we anticipate a, a really nice harvest. In addition to the honey, Kirk says one of his biggest growth markets at the moment is an ancient beverage called mead. We make the honey, we bring it over here, and we, mi we mix it with water, and we ferment it out and bottle it. We call it bee to bottle. 
Oh, meat is huge right now. It's like what alcoholic cider was five or six years ago. I know. And Kirk says business is booming. It started next door at the honey plant. It got, got so big we had to move out and build a whole new facility. And now we're, we're in six states with it, and we're talking about building another building and adding more tanks to keep up with it. By most accounts, meat is the oldest fermented beverage on Earth, predating even wine and beer. I sampled an entire flight of Kirk's meads, you know, for journalism. <laughs> I bet you did. Oh, man, that is good. We made it up, and we found that if we added a little bit of blueberries to it, it would round it out and soften it. Starts sweet and finishes dry. Okay, so pollination, honey, mead, but we haven't talked about beeswax, which is used in everything from industrial solvents to pharmaceuticals to lip balms, even some you may have heard of. Responsibly sourced, sustainably made, with natural ingredients. A true force of nature, just like you, Burt's Bees. The business of bees is quite good. We have doubled the size of our business in the last decade, so we're really proud of that. This is Paula Alexander. And I'm Director of Sustainable Business and Innovation at Burt's Bees. Is that the one with the picture of the old-timey beekeeper on the label? That's Burt. Anyway, in 2007, Clorox bought Burt's Bees for $970 million. Around the world, there is one Burt's Bees lip balm sold every second. That's a whole lot of beeswax. And it all comes from outside the United States. This is Shannon Hess. She's the Associate Director of Responsible Sourcing at Burt's Bees, speaking in a video the company made explaining why it chose to source its beeswax from so far away. For the last 15 years, we've been sourcing beeswax from this region in Tanzania because we are really seeking high-quality, pure, natural ingredients. And as we see population growth and urban sprawl, this really leads us out into some very remote locations to find the ingredients. So it's not that American bees don't produce the right kind of wax or anything like that, but more that they're concerned about them being exposed to pesticides or chemicals from, say, an almond orchard or maybe a nearby field of corn. Oh, right. Those probably aren't the things you want showing up in your cosmetics or lip balm. Yep. Pesticides. Probably not the best thing for creating that dewy glow. Pesticides are actually a big part of the story of bees today and something we're going to be talking about in greater detail in future episodes. So in summary, the state of the bee economy is strong. There's huge demand for pollination, but also other markets as well. Right. But there's also these huge systemic challenges, particularly just keeping the bees alive so that we have enough to meet the demands of agriculture. So what do we have coming up next week? Next week, we're going to put on our taxonomy hats and dig deep into the history of Apis mellifera. Apis who? Apis mellifera, a.k.a. the European or Western honeybee, as it's commonly known. This is basically the bee of modern agriculture. And we're going to find out what makes it so special among the thousands and thousands of other bees on the planet. There may be 16,000 plus different types of bees, but there are only about seven major species of honeybees. And of those seven, we chose one. 
Oh, that sounds fun. The Business of Bees was produced by myself, Adam Ellington, and my colleagues Tiffany Stecker and Marissa Horn. Our editors on this episode were Jessica Coombs, Lydia Bayoud, Josh Block, and Greg Henderson. We had fact-checking help from Andrea Vittorio and Porter Wells. Music is courtesy of a Creative Commons license from Pottington Bear and Kilo Kaz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>